I've been doing a lot of work in Proverbs 14, getting ready for Advent and writing sermons for the Advent, Advent season. But this is Proverbs 14.4. It says, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. If you think about th- this metaphor of a strong ox, for us, the strong ox is change. This is the, the, the change that, that, that brings the harvest that the Holy Spirit that, that makes us the masterpiece that we've been talking about, our lives stay a lot cleaner in our mind, right? This is I'm, not really clean, but like our lives stay cleaner when, when we're not attempting change. When change comes in, a lot of mess starts to happen. And so what our encouragement here is, is, is let the mess occur. This, this strong ox that's going to come in and, and just mess all over the floor. And I'm impressed that I'm saying mess instead of crap or something else. But yeah, yeah, for a second we had it there. Um, But but if you think about the the difference between a clean stable and a large harvest in in which we would would want, that that option is is put right before us this morning. Um, Every every day that when we wake up into God's kingdom, the, the, the choice of a clean stable or a large harvest is right there. And so what I'd encourage you, especially as we take another step into some difficult portions of, of Scripture, remember that, that there's a word that, that starts us off today. In, in our, it says, therefore, or and further in the NLT. Therefore, so our, our Scripture starts with therefore. Because of all the change that we saw, we should see some change in relationships. That's kind of a precursor of where we're going but that change is that that oxen that comes in, the mess that it makes, we should be pleased about the mess because it leads to a large harvest. So let's invite some oxen into, uh, into our lives because we're getting ready to, to wrap up our journey through the book of Ephesians. Um, in order to understand where we're going today, though, we need to remember where we've been. We started this uh, the first week of September and we saw that, that Paul, starting this letter, he talked about how identity, his identity, changed when he met Jesus. On that road to Damascus, everything about who he was, about how he defined himself, about how the world could define himself, everything changed in that moment on the road to Damascus. We know that from the context of the story that we see in Acts chapter 9, that that change was a movement from death to life. He talked about identity, but he also talked about his identity being rooted before meeting Jesus in selfish ambition and self-protection, and then Jesus. He wrote this entire letter, and really all of his letters, with compassion that extends from his own experience. We have to keep that compassion in mind as we hear what Paul has to say today. We're considering what theologians refer to as house codes, the codes for relationships that are guided by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when when the ox comes in, our relationships change. After we're met by Jesus, relationships are altered because we know we can't stay the way that we were before we, we met Jesus. It means that how we function in relationship can't stay the way that it was before. It's from this perspective that we're going to join Paul in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. And further submit 
to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, one thing I'll say too, there are, are several translations that, that read, be subject one to another in reverence of Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of, of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, at first glance, this can seem like a difficult passage, one that is an affront to the equality message that we hear in culture. Many skeptics of the Christian faith point to this passage as an example of how Christians have failed to progress with, with, with society in terms of justice and equality. What they miss, though, is the beauty of order that flows from spirit-guided relationships. And all of that occurs because of a word that our culture despises. And that word is submission. Now remember, we can't just lift this passage and treat it alone, right? We need to remember the context of all of Scripture. But we also have to remember the context of this letter of what Paul is writing from beginning to end is one piece. To lift a piece out of it is, is really to make an idol. The context of this letter that we've been working through since September is that our identity is that we are adopted, beloved children of God. And from that reality, we are brought from death to life as we see order come through being reconciled to God. The bringing of this order touches every part of our lives. So it stands to reason that we would see order come to relationships when we are in submission to Jesus. Submission, though, is not a popular word. And that can make this passage feel really uncomfortable. Especially if we forget how it started that we all should submit to each other in reverence to Christ. But rather than spend some time talking about why a selfish culture would abhor a word like submission and why it becomes a, a false dichotomy of strength and weakness, we're gonna apply some appreciative inquiry. It's something I've been working on all of 2022. Appreciative inquiry, this, this positivity. It has been fun. 
Um, but we're going we're gonna to unpack what the word really means, and we're, go- we're going to allow the beauty of submission to blossom as we unpack this. Submission is a humble attitude where obedience is rendered within a relationship. Whether it's a relationship with God, whether it's a relationship to authorities, that's a popular one in the United States and in Montana, and also to other people. God requires submission from creation, and in this submission, we see order result. In Psalm 2, 9 through 11, we see this. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. That's a little bit of a harsh uh, a call to submission, but uh, it's a good place to start because we also see this in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. So this is another side of the, of the submission coin, and this is a really in, in important piece to understand. When we talk about submission, when we talk about humbling ourselves in reverence to another, what we're really doing is, is we're lifting that other one up. And, and this, in this lifting upness, we see uh, uh, basically a, a pushback against the creation of hierarchy. And so then what we see also is a new power dynamic emerge. It's a power dynamic that our culture abhors because it's power that doesn't create hierarchy. It's power that exalts another. What we see is submission defined by culture is a power dynamic dichotomy. But submission as it's created by the creator is about order. This dynamic is even evidenced in the way that we were taught to pray in Matthew chapter six. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is submission, and it's a call for order. The Apostle James gives us another angle uh, to order coming from submission in the way that the enemy responds to our submission. In James chapter 4, he writes, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Another side of this, of this coin how many sides are we on now? This is a three-sided, four-sided coin. This is a really crazy coin. Uh, what we see here, though, is that as we submit and we bring order, we also see the enemy disarmed. Now, another model to apply to this passage, this, this idea of submission that really makes submission uh, one of the most beautiful relational acts is that submission is actually demonstrated by God himself. The creator God, God almighty, the most high, the most powerful models submission. We see this in in the very nature of the Trinity as as father, spirit, and son are are co-equal and co-submitted to each other as, they, as, as, as the triune God, as the Godhead, 
rules out this ministry of reconciliation. But we also see this submission from Jesus to his father. We see this in in the garden, praying before his arrest, trial, torture, and death. Jesus prays this to the father in Luke chapter 22. Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This submission, Jesus to the father brings order. In John 5, 19, this really is like the foundation of of how uh, ministry ought to be done, how we ought to operate in the time between the Sundays when we leave this property. John 5, 19, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. This is submission that brings order. Jesus only did what he saw the father do. Again in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know this command leads to eternal life. Another result, now four or five sides of the coin, another result of submission. I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Submitting to Jesus, submitting to the Father, submission leads to order. And order is creation returned to the way that we were created. The writer of Hebrews, I say that a lot because we don't really know who the, I'll tell you, I think it's Priscilla. Hebrews chapter 5, 7 and 8. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. God heard his prayers because he was submitted to the Father. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. What we see here is that submission is not about being ruled over. It's about order in relationship. It's the demonstration of dying to self and moving from selfish to self-sacrifice. The passage opens up with a call for the children of God, for all of us, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not about creating a power dynamic. It's about demonstrating reverence for Christ through mutual submission, to be subject to one another. Paul then applies this to marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, immediately, we see three controversial questions arise. And this is what happens when you take a piece of Scripture and lift it out and try to make it all of Scripture. Three questions that come is, number one, does this teach that that women have to be submissive simply because they're women? Number two, does this submission mean that they're inferior And then number three, does the statement that the husband is the head of the wife mean that he has authority over her? We've got to address each of those questions, but we're going to address them not by lifting that piece of of Scripture out. We're going to look at the entire passage, but we're going to look at it also from the entire context of what Paul is writing and what Paul writes in every letter that is included in Holy Scripture. Isolating the role of the wife from the role of the husband 
creates an image of hierarchy, of impropriety, and authority that at best is not complete and at worst can lead to spiritual, emotional, and physical abuse. We are not going to isolate the call to submit from the call for the husbands to sacrificially give their lives for the sake of their wife. We're not going to do that because Paul didn't do that. And we would be creating a whole nother level of chaos if we were to do so. So to bring all of this into focus, I want to deal with the word head that that Paul is using here. Head of the wife, Christ being the head of the church. Because I think this gives us a lens to see what's going on in in a way that, that, that brings relational order. When we start to isolate single words, though, we need to avoid a common mistake. Illegitimate totality transfer is the reading of all possible meanings of a word into a, a usage in a single instance. So we cannot... I like that. It makes me sound like I need to have one of them like flat-looking hats on. Illegitimate totality transfer. Don't I look smart saying that? We're going to see like, how that looks on the, on the camera later. Illegitimate totality transfer. <laughs> the reading of all possible meanings into a word when it obviously does not mean all of those possible meanings. This is critical when we're talking about the confluence of, of like the four languages that we're dealing with here with the intrusion of, of centuries upon centuries of cultural change. Paul would be thinking in Hebrew and Greek because Paul was smart enough to think at the same time in Hebrew and Greek. Um, his words were written in Greek, translated by some church fathers into Latin, and ultimately it finds its way to English like the dumpster of languages. It does not provide for a one-to-one word exchange as we, trans- as we kind of move through all of these different cultures and languages. So when we see the word head, as in husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, we need a sound understanding of what that word meant in the context that Paul was writing. And we need to understand what that word means in all of Scripture. The word Paul uses for head could be seen as authority, leadership, rulership, or government of, but also it can mean source, and in some cases, source of life. Now, we know that that from the context of all that Paul teaches, and we have a lot of his teachings, that his concern is never hierarchy. His concern is always relationship. That seems to suggest that the argument that that source fits better than authority is probably a sound application. But let's take authority for a moment and ask a question that that, that can help us with this text. Are Are we talking about authority over? And if we are, how is authority demonstrated by God whom we are called to imitate? Either way, looking at this from the standpoint of authority or source, we can find ourselves in, uh, in the same realm if we look at how Scripture deals with authority and how we see God wield authority. Rich Nathan is uh, the founding pastor of, of the Columbus Vineyard in Columbus, Ohio, and he is 
uh, a vineyard father, at, at least. Uh, but he's also a biblical scholar of some renown, renown. And he deals with this question at length in, in several of the, the vineyard uh, uh, policy letters and, and the vineyard theology stuff that he's written. Um, he deals with this at length. Using the triune God as an example, we see the exercise of authority by God the Father in his lifting up Jesus to a position of co-equality and co-rulership. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of the highest honor, elevated Jesus to the, to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the same teaching, Rich Nathan points out that, that God exalts Jesus to the, to the position of co-equal ruler of the universe in the vision that's given to John in the book of Revelation. When John wrote, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. We see that, that the way that, that, that God the Father worked out authority, he did it by lifting up Jesus to a place of co-equality and co-rulership. It's important to note that doesn't mean their jobs are the same, and it does not mean that, that the Father and the Son are interchangeable in terms of, well, the Son can do the Father's job, the Father can do the Son's job. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the point of authority as it's worked out with the father and the son relationship, was the father lifting up the son. It wasn't about hierarchy. It was about relationship. And with this perspective on relationship, we see a mutuality created as we see the reciprocity of relationships form. It's not about better or worse. It's not about hierarchy. It's about fitting into the role with a humble attitude, serving one another. So what we see is Paul saying, wives, have a humble attitude toward your husband. Submit to the relationship of marriage as husbands are the source that leads to lift up, honor, and exalt their wife to a position of co-equal rulership. So the questions that we began with, those three questions, are now irrelevant because we see the example of the triune God, in, it's worked out in mutual submission and exaltation. And so what we can apply to marriage is mutual submission and exaltation. When we view this from the lens of being forever changed by the gospel of Jesus, we see that the change manifests in no longer living for self. We see very clearly that... that a marriage does not last if we're living for self. And that, that goes beyond just in the church. That's culture. If, if you're living for self in a marriage, that marriage is, is at best a marriage only in name. But when we see this ox come in to mess up the stable, when we see the change come into our life, what we see is the adjust from selfish to self-sacrifice. And in that place of self-sacrifice, we see how to live in community, in relationship. 
That community might be a population of two in marriage, and it might be the unity found in the local church. When we live for the good of community, we see order. When we submit one to another, order results. In marriage, when wives submit to husbands and husbands love their wife as Christ loved the church, we see a reciprocity form that brings order. What we don't see is one rule over another. What we don't see is a power dynamic and a hierarchy. What we see is reciprocity. One more illustration of the process that we're called into with our meeting Jesus. We've seen death to life. We've seen seen giving up our old self. Now we see how all of this works. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, two, two united into one. We leave what we were previously. And in joining the family of God, we find unity in ordered relationships. Back to our passage today. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, you're going to look, I'm going to read this face this direction. (laughs) Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. How cool is that? Well, I'm looking at my mom right now. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. How cool is that too? This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from from the Lord. You know, if you think about other ways that we can uh, lift out Scripture, it's very easy for me to, you know, to look over at this side of the room and say, obey your parents, and look at, not necessarily at my mom, but at my kids. Um, (laughs) But then we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same disservice that that has happened for for centuries with, with women and wives, if we don't also look at the part that the husband plays in this reciprocity, this is a really important piece of scripture. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And so I, I say this, and we're going to deal with this here in a moment, but, but this is, uh, this warrants spending some time on. Spiritual relationships that result in order displayed by parents loving corrective training of their kids. This instruction and discipline reflects the identity of parents as children of God, and it teaches their kids to be the same. Proverbs 13. I'm about to go through a lot of Proverbs. I'm on a Proverbs kick lately. Proverbs 13, 24. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Through the lens of fathers, don't provoke your, your, your kids to anger. There's a purpose to discipline. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. 
As parents, we have to keep in mind the goal of discipline. The goal of parenting is not to provoke our, our children to anger. It's not to, uh, to take out all of our frustration on them in, in, a, in a display of, of like injustice or uh, selfishness. This isn't about exerting my will over my kid. This is about training them to know their identity. Proverbs 29, 15 says, to discipline a child produces wisdom. But a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. Proverbs 19, last Proverbs for a little bit, last proverb for a bit. Proverbs 19, 18 says, discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you'll ruin their lives. Hebrews 12 makes this point for us. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. That's the ox in the stable. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. We see that in in spirit-guided relationships. Authority is meant to lift up, not to hold down. Whether it's marriage or parents and kids, the the role of the authority, the role of the head, the role of the source is to lift up, not to hold down. We use our station. We use our giftedness. We use our role to bring others closer to the cross. Following the path of Jesus doesn't mean walking behind him. It means walking like him in his manner, walking in a way that brings others along. And kids, we owe something to our parents. It is a responsibility. And one of the things that that I can say is when I say kids, that's all of us. Paul's echoing Moses when he calls us to honor our parents and obey them as an example of our submission to God. Every kid in every time, every kid in every time, Conley, you tell me if I'm right on this, okay? Every kid in every time has seen their parents as a lame animal that doesn't understand what it's like to be a kid in their time. (laughs) Yeah, I got a thumbs up. (laughs) We're going to pray for him later. (laughs) Oh, man. Where was I going with that? That was awesome. That worked out better than I thought it would. Um, But imagine, imagine if instead of seeing in our parents... This lame animal that doesn't understand what it's like to be a kid now. Instead, imagine if we saw in our parents people that are in process. People that are ahead of us in the process. That are trying to look like Jesus. And what if we saw as kids looking at parents that their role is to submit to Jesus and then teach us to do the same. 
I know that many of us as kids look to our parents and we see failures in this task. But one thing I do know for sure is beyond the biological, natural parents. God loves us enough, especially when we think about how this is worked out in the church, how this is worked out here, when we call ourselves the family of God. We have parents here with us. I have several parents in this room. I have several parents in this room that have taught me that, that even if, um, even though I, I was blessed with, with my natural parents, the parents that I had, I have more than that. And so if, if it wasn't such a blessing, when you look at, at your parents, all I can say is that God loves you enough to bring you this. These parents are good parents and have a lot to teach. Maybe something to talk about as you all meet uh, in your potluck after church, being good parents to all of us. As we watch them in their role to submit, they're training us to do the same. This is a spirit-guided relationship. One more. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. That's probably good for anybody that, that works as a subordinate, right? Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. More reciprocity. Of all the relational codes, I think this is the one that, that drives the point home the most for me. The point is that, that we are to be subject to one another. The reality of slavery in the New Testament church is another example for Jesus to counter culture and push back against how relationships were corrupted by selfishness and by hierarchy. Slavery in, in ancient times, it, it's not like the chattel slavery that we know from the opening of the Atlantic world. This was a regular part of society, and, and it was possible to move from slave to free and then back again because it was tied to economics. Accepting those that, that were, were slaves because they were prisoners of war, the path to slavery in, in this era was really more about survival than anything else. It was economic. You could sell yourself and you could sell your kids into slavery, into slavery in order to survive. Because to be a slave meant that you were a part of a household, you were guaranteed food, you were guaranteed shelter. Now, I'm not saying that slavery was good, and I'm not pro-slavery. I just want to make sure that that's captured on the camera. I am not pro-slavery. Uh, but sometimes, buying a slave was actually an act of mercy 
and it, and it became one of the very earliest forms of social welfare. I'm not downplaying the reality of the situation. I'm not holding up this idea that, that people should ever own other people. I'm just pointing out that it's much different. What Paul's writing to is much different than the slavery that we have seen tied to colonialism. The, the status of slaves in the church also was transformed by the work of Jesus. Slaves were accorded greater respect because they were seen to be spiritually equal to others, even though they weren't uh, in terms of, of society. Another example of how those that meet Jesus are called into relationship that lifts each other up. The words Paul has for slave owners in this passage also leaves us with an emphatic point that there is not a hierarchy of relationship in the kingdom of God. When he writes to the church in Galatia, he makes that point, Galatians chapter 3, 26 to 28, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The result of all of this is unity. And the all of this is really a, a simple summation. Be subject to one another. That's what this means. Be subject to one another. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Paul make the case for the effect that comes from meeting Jesus. We can't stay the same. Nothing stays the same. The ox is going to make a mess. We are dead in our separation from God. And we were in chaos with the ambitious uh, competition of survival that results from serving self. We claimed identities that did not reflect truth. Then, though, we meet Jesus. We hear his words of freedom. We respond to his beckoning. We respond to his challenge to put down our selfish ways, pick up the cross, and follow him. The change that we experience is total. Nothing in our lives is untouched. The movement from death to life, the reality of adoption into the family of God, all of this leads to the place where selfishness becomes a sacrifice. Our relationships are changed by the same grace that set us free. The same grace that allows us to be called masterpiece of the Father. We take on his image and we imitate him. We imitate him in our relationships by using what we have and who we are to lift up those that we're in relationship with. So, we can close with this. Vineyard, be subject to one another. Amen? Let's worship.